We're in Numbers chapter uh, 19 tonight. There we are. Verse 1. Hear God's holy word. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest. It shall be brought outside the camp and be slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eleazar the priest shall take some of the blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide, its flesh, its blood with its refuse shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material, cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water, bathe his body in water, and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water, to remove impurity for its purification from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. It shall be perpetual statute to the sons of Israel and to the alien who sojourns among them. The one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. That one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, and then he'll be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and the seventh day, he will not be clean. If anyone touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died and does not purify himself, he defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel. Because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him, he shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. Everyone who comes into the tent, everyone who is in the tent, shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied down on it shall be unclean. Also, anyone who is in the open field touches one who has been slain with a sword, who has died naturally, or a human bone or grave, shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from sin and flowing water, or living water, shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop, dip it in the water, and sprinkle it on the tent and all the furnishings and the person who were there. And on the one who touched the bone or the one slain or the one dying naturally or the grave, then that person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third and the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself from uncleanness. He shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water. He shall be unclean, clean by evening. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He's unclean. So it shall be a perpetual statute for them. And he who sprinkles the water for impurity shall wash his clothes. He who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean. And the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Amen. Let's um, pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much uh, for the gift of Holy Scripture. 
We thank you, Lord God, for the labors of those men who lived and labored and died to give us the Holy Scripture in a language that we could understand. And therefore, Lord God, it wouldn't be a closed book to us. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for the new eyes to see and the new ears to hear, the heart to understand and to love and believe and obey your Holy Scripture. I hope and pray tonight, Lord God, that you would give me special insight that I could um, rightly present um, your truth from this passage, that we are unclean and we need the cleansing that you provide, Lord God, and uh, ultimately not the heifer, but the lamb. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This is, um, to me, a, uh, it's a very interesting, well, I'm, act- I'm, I'm actually loving preparing um, for my number. I love preparing sermons anyways. But the book of Numbers is very interesting to me. There's a lot of redundancy in it. But because I'm manuscript, I, I know that I'm not sinfully redundant. There's enough in each chapter that uh, there's a lot of new material every time we come to a new uh, portion of the number book of Numbers. This is an interesting passage because this was one of the things um, that was brought into my life as a brand new Christian. I'm, what am I, 59, and I was converted at, at 26 back in New England, in Massachusetts. And most of all of my early influences, uh, uh, Christian influences as a born-again Christian, they come from what, what's known as a dispensational camp. It's a, it's a, it's a particular um, theological grid of how you see the Bible. And I'm not going to enter into a polemical discourse on a dispensationalism. But all that to say, in that branch of the church, I, I learned a great deal about, about Christ, about the Bible. These are true brothers and sisters, and I, I learned a lot from them. And one of the things about in my year, formative years that dispensationalists usually are very keen on prophecy conferences. We would go to prophecy conferences, um, first year as a Christian over in Tallahassee in the Fundamental Baptist Church, Temple Baptist. Jimmy DeYoung would come, and, and it was very much keen on building, Henry mentioned to me, the Third Temple, which again, this is different from Reform theological grid, which is covenantal. But Third Temple is very big. Um, the reinstitution of the Levitical priesthood, which is why you need the temple. The reinstitution of the sacrifices. You need the sacrifice-ers and the sacrifices. And the Jews are going to get the land. The church is going to be raptured out. And so I was kind of, I cut my teeth on these things. And we would get a, a, um, a newsletter written by a man, J.R. Church. I want to say... Brother Church lived from 1938 to 2011. He's in glory now. And we would get his newspaper prophecy um, taper regularly. And one day at the house, we got this. And we just thought this was, everybody believed this. We didn't know that there were different ways to see prophecy. And they had a picture of a farmer out in the Midwest, I don't know, Iowa. (laughs) And he had a picture of a red heifer. And they said, see, this is... That's numbers right there, and this is what's going to happen, and they've got the Levites in the back, and, and we're ready to go. And the church is getting ready to be raptured out. And um, when I came here, I immediately thought of J.R. Church. 
And so I, I went online to find J.R. Church, and uh, there's a site that promotes his teaching. It's called Rapture Ready, which I, I did thoroughly enjoy. Again, that's in the, you have the two ways, there are many ways to kind of look at the Bible theologically. One is a dispensational grid. The other grid that reform people oftentimes is covenantal, which is why I led with the liturgical reading from chapter seven uh, in the Old Testament when they had the Lamb of God that was typological of Jesus, who is the Lamb of God. So obviously, because I'm a Presbyterian Reformed minister, I hold to uh, this. And another thing related to this kind of, uh, the way that I used to see scripture, not only were they very keen on uh, reestablishing the Third Temple, as it were, um, they also loved to, um, to um, try to figure out when Christ was coming back and, uh, for the rapture to occur. There was a book written um, by a fellow, Edgar Wiesenart. He was a former NASA engineer, and he wrote a book, which I may have even had. Um, Tony knows this. 88 Reasons Why Christ Will Come Back in 88 and the Church Will Be Raptured in 88. I would just say this. I'm not being polemical against the dispensational camp. I would just say this. It's always a bad idea to pick the day when Jesus Christ is coming back. Because Jesus Christ says, no man knows, not even the Son of God. That's a perplexing thing. But it's a dangerous idea. A number of years ago, not too long ago, what was his name? Harold Camping? Uh, Harold Camping had picked the day like three or four times. (laughs) And um, yeah, read uh, Matthew 24. So um, that's kind of my introduction to this particular uh, passage, this red heifer uh, passage. I would say, if you're still wondering, well, what about rebuilding the Third Temple? What about reinstituting the Levitical uh, priesthood? What changed me from being a dispensationalist to to covenantal was uh, meditating on the book of Hebrews. I honestly don't know how a slow, meditative, contemplative read of the book of Hebrews, where Jesus says it's done, the bulls and the goats. It's even going to use the red heifer. It will even use the red heifer and say this is fulfilled in him. Um, yeah, uh, but all that to say. Now, now let's look at our, our passage, enough of my history with this passage. When we look here, I want us to establish the primary <clears throat> the primary meaning of this particular pa- passage or the primary purpose of the red heifer and reducing it to ashes and so on and being sprinkled with the ash water the primary teaching of this passage is a passage on purification that's what's going on so i want to be a, a good detective we're going to deduce what's going on So this passage is fundamentally about purification of unclean. And the unclean thing in view is the purification of man who has become unclean. And I do want to see that there are only two ways for man to rectify man's problem. One is by his doing and the other is by receiving what God has done. This is not a purification by man's works. Unclean man cannot rectify unclean man's problem. Unclean man needs God's solution. That's sovereign grace. 
from beginning to end, explicitly stated and by good and necessary consequence. So unclean man who is separated from God needs to be reconciled by God according to the method that God prescribes. That's, that's sovereign grace. That's what we're looking at. Again, not by man's works. So it is a purification passage. And when we talk about purification, the notion is one of holiness. We spoke a little bit in Sunday school on justification holiness, imputed on sanctification holiness, progressive sanctification. And I don't want to get myself too far afield. But the notion is that man here is depicted as a sinner. God is spotlessly, blindingly holy. And that the Bible tells us that God's eyes are too pure to look upon sin with any favor. And that he dwells in unapproachable light. That's holiness. We can't even contemplate the holiness of God unless we meditate upon the cross of Christ, which shows us God's hatred against that which is not holy, which is sin, and what's requisite to make man holy, which is the death of his son. So when we're talking about purification, we're really talking about man's need for holiness. This is part of the problem with the modern church. The modern church has dumbed down God because they dumb down the problem of man. They think they need a little God, a God who gives health and wealth, a God who's your friend when you're sad. And I'm all for having a friend when you're sad, but that's a minuscule God. It's not the God of the Bible. And it, it makes man's need minuscule before the God of the Bible. But when we look at the God of the Bible, God of the Bible is transcendent. He is imminent in the person of Christ, but he's transcendent. He's other. He's infinitely, spotlessly pure. And then man before him, in our fallen nature, we're all sin. As the book of Isaiah says, from the top of our head to the tip of our toes. So what man needs is not therapy. I'm not making fun of therapy. Or education or medicine. But that's not what man needs. Natural man needs holiness. We have to be holy in order to live with a holy God. That's why the Christian religion is so exclusive. All the other religions of the world say, well, we're going we're gonna to work our way there. Unholy man cannot work his way into the presence of a, a holy God. So this is about a holiness. Now, because we're in the Old Testament, what we're looking at is, I'm going to have to use a phrase, and I'll try to unpack it a little bit further on in the ser- sermon, is um, ceremonial or ritualistic Holiness. Again, if you're familiar with the book of Hebrews, you'll know what I'm talking about. So the blood of the bulls and the goats and, the, and all of these ashes sprinkled and the blood sprinkled, it's ceremonial. It's pointing to something that's infinitely higher. I said it every Sunday of my life as a Roman Catholic. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's John the Baptist pointing at Jesus Christ. He's using the language of the old covenant. There he is. He's the Passover lamb. There's Exodus. There's Leviticus 16. So this ceremonial holiness finds its fruition or its zenith in Christ. Does that make sense? I hope it does. So it's a purification passage. It's a holiness passage. And when we talk about these things, again, we're just kind of trying to look at it again thematically what's going on here. The passage of purification holiness makes unholy man, unclean man, and therefore unacceptable man, by God's own cleansing ritual, he makes him acceptable. I I want you to chew on that. Again, this is where the natural man 
or the non-Christian person falls woefully short of their idea of God. They think that, that when they die, they'll waltz into heaven and they'll say, hey, God, what's going on? You, you will do nothing of the sort. Nothing of the sort. Read Isaiah chapter 6. Read the book of Revelation. Even reconciled human beings like Isaiah or John on the Isle of Patmos, they're on their face like dead men before the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Natural man cannot be in the presence of God without hearing, depart from me, you work of iniquity. It just cannot happen. Because you're going to be looking at the blinding holiness of God with burning wrath against the sin of man. Natural man is unacceptable to God. And so this is why we talk about real prayer. Everyone prays. It shows the universal nature of religion. All men are religious creatures. But the only prayer that's acceptable to God is made through the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ, and offered by faith, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. So we don't think, we think everyone's acceptable to God. No, that's exactly wrong. The only people that are acceptable to God, that are received by him, are sprinkled clean with, with the blood of, of, of the Lamb. They're made clean with this purification rite, again, finding its zenith in Jesus Christ. So we're going to unpack this a little bit more as we go along. But this purification rite makes unclean man, unacceptable man, acceptable to God. They can come near to God and have union or communion, or as the Dutch like to say, friendship with God, which I really like that. And then apart from this, you're, you, you are not God's friend. You're going to hear depart. So let's talk about the unclean person. What makes this person unclean is when they come in contact with the corpse of a dead person. Now, I will just say, the uh, Old Testament, Leviticus, we've come across this in other passages, they do have laws, again in the old epoch, that uh, deal with touching an animal, a dead animal, uh, would make one unclean, and then there'd be certain rites for that cleansing. But the, the corpse in view here is not of, a, of, a, of an animal, but it's uh, of a person. And the uncleanness that's being contracted by the person touching, again, this is all ceremonial. It doesn't mean it's not true, but it's just, it's typological of, of higher things, spiritual things. The uncleanness that the person contracts by touching a, a dead person is not physical. It's not as if you're contracting a disease. So this isn't don't touch the dead person because the dead person has the bubonic plague and you'll contract death, as it were. That's not in view. What's in view is something spiritual. It's teaching something about the fallen nature of man in relation to death. And what man needs is some kind of cleansing and some kind of revival, physical vivifying is the old word, to make alive. Mortifying is to kill and vivify is to make alive. So God provides this vivifying, this cleansing ceremonial rite because man has been unclean by coming in contact with death. And we'll figure out why in just a bit. Now, I've mentioned a few times that this is ceremonial or ritualistic or symbolic. When I say... Um, ritualistic or symbolic, it doesn't mean that it's unreal. When you read, what is the most symbolical book in the Bible, the, the, the most one, beyond even Daniel? I would argue Revelation. When you read the book of Revelation, are those things real? 
I'm reading the book of Revelation for my morning worship. When I come in, into church every morning, I worship. And I'm reading, I'm plowing through the book ever so slowly. And I read this morning chapter five. And I'm just eating and meditating and praying over every line. I'm thinking, this is so amazing. Symbolic doesn't mean unreal. What we're looking at is this is teaching something higher, a spiritual reality. So we say this is real. Yeah, the pulpit, the wood is real. The the tile is real. But so is the Lord Jesus Christ. So is the Holy Spirit. So is heaven. All of the immaterial things that we can't touch, they're real. The Apostle Paul argues in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he argues that these eternal things, if I could use the phrase, are almost realer than the things that we can see. He says, we're, we're living not on these things, but we're living on a, a reality that's super, that's above this. These, he says these are the eternal, the unseen things. So we're not going to be good Bereans, good Christians, if we don't think spiritually. And we need to, what is God, what higher lessons, when God says you're unclean, what higher lessons does he have for us here? And I would argue the best way, if you don't have a good handle on the Old Testament, particularly a book like this, which is the ceremonial law, I would literally read it with, through the book of Hebrews. This is St. Augustine. St. Augustine said the, the gospel was in the Old Testament in seed form, and it comes to fruition in flower form in the New Testament. And so we read the Old Testament through the Christological lenses of the New Testament. This is, there's nothing new about this. The Roman Catholic Church views it this way. The Reformed Church views it this way. So we're looking at these things with spiritual lenses. And as I say, ultimately, the substance of these ceremonies is of Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we, um, in the Reformed camp, we speak of this particular time in the book of uh, Numbers. When, what is, what's Numbers? Historically speaking, the time of the wilderness sojourn, I don't know, 1450, something like that, uh, with Moses. So what's David? David is 1,000, 1,100. Solomon's 1,900. Yeah, so we're 1450. So sometimes Reformed theologians refer to this particular historical point of time as the church's infancy. And they're using the the word church, ecclesia, meaning the household of faith, because the New Testament refers to the Old Testament Israel as the church in Acts chapter 7, round about 30-something. So this is how the New Testament says what we're looking at. God speaks in the Old Testament uh, in kind of... um, Child, child language. So this is what we would call the infancy of the church or the propodeutic period of the church. Have you ever heard that phrase? The propodeutic period of the church. In my seminary, my master's, it was a four-year program. The first year program was a propodeutic year, and then you had one, two, three. Propodeutic means preliminary training. And so the Reformed theologians will say, well, God spoke with this kind of infantile language of types and shadows and these kind of things, because it was the time of the church's immaturity. But now in the New Testament epoch, it's the time of the church's maturity. So he no longer speaks in baby language, as it were, but he speaks more clearly through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. 
And if you know your Bible, you know I'm paraphrasing Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. But let me read something from Galatians 4, 1. Paul says this. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But if he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the father, so also while we were children, we were held under bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. So he's referring to redemptive history, infancy, maturity. Why does God speak in these types and shadows and parables? Because it's the church in her infancy. And when Christ in the fullness of time comes, he speaks more clearly. Now, the thing that makes the person symbolically unclean in our passage is what? If you look at it, what is it? It's death. And as I, I, I mentioned, something is spiritually or symbolically being transferred from the dead person to the living person. Again, not the disease idea. And it's not even necessarily contracted or conveyed by physical touch. In fact, halfway through the passage, maybe verse 11, somewhere thereabouts, you don't even have to come into physical contact with a dead person. You just have to be near death. And you have become ceremonially or ritualistically unclean. The idea is there's something associated with the death of man that that signifies something about man, his spiritual nature, for which he needs some kind of cleansing, vivifying um, solution from God. The Bible says this in a number of places, but I'll just read one. Uh, Leviticus 21.1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron. Say to them, No one shall devile himself for a dead person among his people except for his relatives or who are nearest for him, his mother and his father, his son, his daughter, his brother, also for his virgin sister who is near to him, because she has no husband, for he may defile himself. He shall not defile himself as a relative by marriage among his people so as to profane himself. So God is telling the ironical priests, you may convey the body, bury the body, touch the body of a dead person, and you're defiling yourself, but you may do this for these various relationships. And what we're looking at here is that the Bible is teaching there is some kind of something unclean passing from this idea of death uh, to man for which God needs to provide. Now, let's be good Bereans. Let's be good Bible detectives. When... What, when was death introduced in the Bible and for what reason? We're going to get at what this is teaching us. When was death introduced in the Bible and for what reason? Um, it was for the sin of Adam. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And so, and it's not, it's not the sin per se that immediately caused the death. There's something behind the sin that causes the death. And what am I getting at? Is the curse of God. Is the curse of God. It's not as if to say you, you tripped over a landmine and blew yourself up and the sin is the landmine. When Adam sinned against God as the covenantal head of his people, him and all those he represented who are descended from him by ordinary generation, God cursed man. That's what causes the death. 
What causes the death is God's curse for man's sin. This is a Romans chapter 5. This is a 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So man sinned, and through Adam's sin, God cursed man and all of creation. In Romans chapter 8, from then until the coming of Jesus, everything's groaning. And so we live, there's a phrase, we live among, as we live, we're dying, something like that. The moment we come forth from the womb, we're going to live dying because of sin. And so when we're looking at this business, we're trying to look with spiritual lenses on why, what's going on. God is saying something about death, the cause of death, has to be, has to be met by something that God provides, which is a cleansing, a vivifying a right. But it's, it is the curse that God has placed upon man, which is death. As I say, Romans chapter 5. Now, there are a couple of different kinds of death in the Bible. We'll, we'll speak of physical death, which is just the cessation of our animal life. And we, we are animals. I mean, we're mammals. It's the cessation of our animal life. But physical death is just a harbinger or a herald of, of a larger, more meaningful death for human beings. And that is spiritual death. This is in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, or Genesis chapter 2, 16 and 17. Or, and 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this. A, a spiritual death, that, that our, our spirits are dead towards God, that we're in enmity towards God, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 7. So... When we talk about death, sometimes we just think physical death. For cats and dogs and those things, they're not image bearers. They die and they expire. But for the human being, the physical death is pointing forward to something far greater, which is spiritual death. Now, the other kind of death that the Bible does speak about, it's called the second death. Have you ever heard that phrase? It's called the second death. Every place in the Bible, there are four instances in the New Testament that use the phrase, the second death. They're all found in the book of Revelation. And that is referring to someone that dies without faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they are going to undergo everlasting condemnation. I, I, I mentioned a phrase this morning in Sunday school. I always am afraid that I misspeak. I say something wrong, both in content and, or perhaps even timing. And I, I, I spoke about inclusivism, and uh, I spoke about the doctrine of the, the anonymous Christian and C.S. Lewis and so on. And so I read a Catholic theologian this afternoon um, on uh, uh, Karl Rahner, I think, on, um, on, on this notion of other religious people, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, who uh, everyone's really a Christian. They just, they just don't know it. Um, that no one will suffer the second uh, death, as it were. I was correct in what I said. Um, that, that is not true, beloved. That, that is not true. The Muslim is not a secret Christian. The Buddhist is not a secret Christian. Uh, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. And if we die in our sins, either Christ will, is the payment for our sins or we will be the payment for our sins. And, and we will pay for eternity. And people say, well, Joe Rogan, people listen to this guy. He's a tough guy and whatever he does. And men want to be tough, so they listen to him. And he says, well, you know, it's not fair of God to punish eternally for a temporal sin. The problem is you don't understand God. 
Any offense against God is an offense against an infinite being. So it's like asking the criminal, don't you agree with, 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 the, with, the, with the punishment? You're a criminal. So any crime against God is a crime against an infinite God, and therefore it requires an infinite payment. So God is not, God's not going to condescend to give the answer, but that's the answer. And so either Christ pays or, or will pay. And the second death is, as I say, eternal condemnation, and it is eternal condemnation. Um, as much as I love John Stott, and I really do love him, uh, he, was, he, he, he embraced annihilationalism in his older age, which he, didn't, he denied that there would be eternal perdition. He, he's wrong, but I do love him. Uh, second death. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested. You'll have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. So this, this whole ceremony of man being unclean by death because of sin requires the provision of God, and it will be this baptism, this sprinkling of a sacrificial oblation that makes the unclean person, because of death, because of sin, clean. And what I mentioned it earlier, what this whole ceremony is designed to do is to make the person that was unacceptable and therefore had to be separated from God. The person, a couple of places in the text, will say outside of the, outside of the camp. There is the idea that this uncleanness, this sin, has made a separation between holy God and unholy sinful man, and man cannot live with God. There has to be a separation. And what God says is he makes a provision for man to be thus brought back into union and friendship with, uh, with, with himself. There are, this is not just the case of this particular unique passage uh, the one that comes to my mind, the most common one that comes to my mind, who was the person in the Old Testament that had to walk around beating their breast, saying, unclean, unclean, and they had to live separate from God and separate from God's people? It was a form of living death, this. Who was the person? It was a leper. This is Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14. Remember Miriam back, was it chapter 12? She didn't like Moses' black wife, and she, and she wanted to be over Moses, and Irim wanted to be over Moses. They, they had leadership envy, and they were racists. And God said, if you have a problem with her black skin, I'm going to make you white as snow, leprous. And what happened had to happen to the leper. You're a living dead man. You have to live apart from God. You can't come near the tabernacle. No friendship with God. No friendship with, with, God, with God's people. If, if a person has no friendship with God and no friendship with God's people, what is that a picture of? Hell. That's a picture of hell. That's what hell is. Life is a union in communion with God. Life with God's people is union in communion with God's people with God. Hell is living death. Separated from the friendly presence of God and separated from the friendly people of God. It's a form of hell. You can't live with God. And so who moves first in this scheme? God moves first. This is grace. 
This is why I'm not a Pelagian or semi-Pelagian or any of those things. Neonomian, legalist, man does not move towards God first. God has to move towards man. I'm not saying man doesn't have a will. I'm not saying, I'm not saying they were, were robots. But God moves first. And why does God want to reconcile himself to unclean man? Because he's a God of love. He's a God of love. And out of love and out of grace, he moves towards man. Now, when you think about who this law would be applicable to, who would need the cleansing ashes? The, the, you reduce the red heifer to ashes, and then you mix it with water, and then you sprinkle, sprinkle the clean water, and then you're made clean. Who would this be applicable to? Is it just two people in the camp? Now, when I first was thinking of this, I was thinking about touching a dead, dead animal making you unclean. And I thought, well, maybe if you're a modern, maybe you're a modern, you've never touched a dead animal, maybe you wouldn't be unclean that way. But then I thought, well, unless you're a vegan and your parents are vegans, every chicken dinner or fish dinner, you're touching something dead. So if they're just animals, if you have a pet, I mean, I, 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 well, I suppose now, like we dress everything up and everything is different. But when we were kids, we had cats and dogs and when they died, I buried them. Or my father, if they ate rat poison, he dispatched them and then I buried them. It was just, we, everyone did it. So everyone was in contact with dead animals all the time. But what about a dead person? Could we live as moderns our whole life and never, never, never come in contact with a dead person? Maybe. Again, I have touched dead people, many dead people. Um, but remember the context of the passage, not just touching the dead person, being in the same room. Now, now we're talking about, have you ever been in the same room? Everyone in this room has been in a funeral. Have you not? And I don't know about every funeral that you've been in, but a lot of them have the person sitting in the room. You would be unclean. Now let's go back to the, 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 the point of time. God has just told the people, you're going to go, it should have taken you 11 days to the walk to the promised land. Because you sinned against me, it's going to take 40 years. And in 40 years, I'm going to have the whole generation of military age men do what in the, in the wilderness? Die. And who's going to bury him? Not O'Shaughnessy's uh, funeral home. My, my, dad was, my dad was Doherty. And then I remember calling Doherty when my mom died. I said, yeah, Doherty, Shortman. He goes, didn't I do your dad? I said, you did my dad. No, come help my mom. So this isn't calling Doherty's funeral home to come get the body. Who's getting the body? You're getting the body. I mean, I'm, I'm only 59. My father said when he was a kid in Boston, they would wake all of the family in the family house. The women would prepare the bodies in the family home. This is just in my own, my own short lifetime. So my father's generation, they all did the funeral home work. So in this context, this would affect everyone. And what is that teaching? The universal need of the cleansing. I don't want to spend a ton of, ton of time because you might say I'm fast and loose with this, but you have the red heifer. And oh, I did. I asked my wife this question because I didn't really know it either. I am not a country person. And you're going to say, boy, John, you're not a country person. You're clueless. So I asked my wife today. I was setting her up because I got it wrong. I said, what's a heifer? She said, I think it's a male cow. And I was laughing because of, ah, I caught you on that. It's, it's a female. A cow is a female, but it's a young cow. I think technically that's never had calves, I think. And so it's a, a, a whatever, your bovine. 
but it's a, it's a female. So they have this, this young female cow that's never bore a calf, and you, you're burning this thing, you're reducing it to ashes. Then, and there's, there are guys that talk about why the red is the color of blood. They get very fantastical to me. The thing I do know is it has to be spotless. And the ultimate sacrifice that makes us acceptable to God is spotless. And it's the Lamb of God, Christ Jesus. This is why good works aren't going to cut it. Think about the best work you've ever done on the planet. You gave five bucks to the Sisters of Mercy. I don't know. You went to church twice on a Sunday. I don't know. Your best work. Our best works are filthy rags. They're filled with so much sin. Christ is the spotless. It has to be spotless. Then you burn this thing. You reduce it to ashes. And the reason for the oblation is that you're going to take the ashes, you're going to mix it with water, you're going to take a hyssop branch, like a little brush, and you're going to sprinkle it on the unclean person. That's the purification rite. And this is the means, typologically, symbolically, of taking this person who's come in contact with death and for sin to make them alive, to make them clean, to make them acceptable. And as I've said... I have found great benefit in my Christian life of being around brothers and sisters who are Baptists, Episcopalians, Pentecostal. I used to hang out with holiness Christians, which is a different group altogether. I have gleaned spiritual insight from all of those groups of people. So we obviously believe what we believe. And so there are some folks who say, well, baptism is, it means immersion. It means dunking. I used to believe that. It doesn't mean dunking. It means ultimately purification. I'm going to read something because this, what's going on here with the sprinkling is an Old Testament baptism. I promise you I'm telling you the truth. This is not to like so you can go fight with your Baptist cousin, but this is a fact. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10. Um, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that in the way into the holy place has not been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, that's the ceremonial, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, baptismois. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 10, 13, 15, and 19 Talk about Old Testament baptisms. This is an Old Testament baptism. In the Reformed camp, as far as, I, as far as I understand, you may differ with me, the Reformed camp doesn't see the significance of baptism in the mode. Our secondary standard says immersion is a legitimate form of baptism. I believe in effusion or sprinkling. Effusion is pouring. The Holy Spirit baptized the New Testament church. What mode of baptism did the Holy Spirit baptize the church with? Effusion, which is pouring. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, when we're talked of being cleansed by our sins by the Lord Jesus Christ, it's a baptism by sprinkling. So the the fundamental significance of baptism, in, in our opinion, is not the mode. The fundamental significance is the purification. It's the holiness. And Christ, as I say, 1 Peter, what am I saying? Um, 
Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered through Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen, that's elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. That's, when you think, how did the Old Testament saints, how were they saved from their sins the same way that we are? By faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in the sprinkling, the cleansing provided by Christ. They knew this much. And we live in the fullness of time, we know more. But it's because of sin, it's ultimately to free us from death and to make us acceptable to God, and it's by the sprinkling of the Lamb. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.